Hello, and welcome to Learning from Nature, the biomimicry podcast with me, your host, Lily Ehrman. Thanks for being here. I'm very excited for this episode about biophilia and bio-inspired design with Tim McGee. As I mentioned in the first episode, there's a spectrum of design inspired by and using nature, where biomimicry usually only involves translating biological strategies to design ideas. As you will hear in the conversation with my guest today, biophilia and bio-inspired design also live on this spectrum and are definitely an important part of creating a life-friendly future. Tim's work has focused on strategic and sustainable innovation, product design, and systems development at the intersection of biology, design, and engineering. This work includes opportunity identification for investment, as well as creating and supporting design and engineering teams to create sustainable solutions. A few of his clients have included Boston Consulting Group, Washington State, Chrysler Fiat, Canada Goose, and Lululemon. You are in for a treat with this episode, and I even recommend taking us on a walk in nature. Download this podcast episode and bring it with you on your next adventure outside. The sound of wind in the trees and the birds chirping will make your listening experience even more joyful. This episode is a little bit longer than previous ones, but I really couldn't bring myself to cut any more out, and I promise every minute is worth it. Welcome, Tim. I'm excited to chat with you today, and I would love for you to introduce yourself um, with your pronouns, please, and kind of what you're working on currently. Yeah, sure. I'm Tim McGee, he, him, and uh, working on currently. So the founder of Lab, and um, really what spending time doing right now is working with different clients, mostly Lululemon, on uh, what is the future of their business if you take a look from a biology perspective mm. or take a look from a biophilic design perspective and where does that start to feed into their innovation platforms and um, their portfolio and how they're thinking about the future awesome and so right off the bat i'd love for you to introduce and define biophilia and biomimicry in your own words yeah sure um to me biomimicry is learning from nature and so I think that's the best like one mm-hmm. sentence description. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that, but it's really that framing that it's about, you know, looking to nature and learning from it mm-hmm. uh, rather than working with it or, or, or using it, uh, but, but learning from it. And I think then biophilic design or biophilia um, really is, uh, people's attraction or or are evolved um, physiological and cognitive responses to nature. So mm-hmm. it's 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 more about it's biophilic design or biophilia is very human centered, whereas biomimicry is uh, exclusively not human centered. And so I think that's an interesting contrast, um, especially when you talk about design and design thinking. Um, coming from a human-centered design standpoint, mm-hmm. um, when I talk with designers, biophilic design or biophilia is much more relatable in some ways, yeah. whereas biomimicry is much more disruptive because it's um, you know inherently not including people or or not necessarily not including them, but but it's not from a person's perspective. It's looking at nature, learning from nature rather rather than biophilia is very much a you know, what is our response to nature? People are the center of biophilic design as opposed to biomimicry. 
Exactly. And we have that kind of deep connection to biophilia, almost this inherent connection when we realize that biophilia refers to like going out on, you know, walks and connecting with nature and, you know, all the houseplants I have in my apartment and how much happier they make me and filtering the air and everything. So yeah, totally. How did you first get interested in biomimicry and biophilia? Yeah, I think, I mean, growing up in the Northwest, you're exposed to it, but there's a story that I tell, which is um, when I was maybe six or seven years old, uh, our family went on a car trip out to Yellowstone National Park. And I was, um, you know, in one of these general stores where they have these little toy guns and and I really wanted it. And so my mother was like, okay, and we're waiting in line and I'm, I'm shooting the person behind us with my little pop gun. <laughs> and my mom says, it's not nice to shoot people. And I say, I'm not shooting a person, I'm shooting an Indian. And of course he was Native American. And my mother was aghast that she was raising a little, you know, um, <laughs> like somebody who, who would do such a thing. And, and, and the gentleman behind us was very nice and, and smiled. And, um, but right after we got home, my mother enrolled me in um, a native uh, Salish art class. And in that class, which I loved, was a, um, a teacher who, who was local, who was part of part of local tribes and who um, talked about the art and the language and the beliefs of, um, of the region in, in, in terms of, you know, that we are all part of a larger system, that, that, the, that the bears and the eagles and the, and the fish are our brothers and that, um, and that we respect them and we relate to them and that we're part of that system. Mm-hmm. And that sort of systems view was was really um, made a lot of sense to me early on and was sort of baked into how I started approaching the world. And I, so I give that a lot of credit in terms of um, really, really early sort of ecological thinking, really yeah. early um, doing that. And then I clearly remember we had one um, class where this was in like middle school then, so a little while later, where we had a challenge, which was, you know, we were going to like throw, I forget what it was, like a weight or paper clips off the top of a building. And the challenge was who could get the paper clips to go the furthest. And you could have paper um, to use to help that mm-hmm. move. And so a lot of people made paper airplanes, but for some reason, our group, whether it was me or somebody else in the group, we convinced the team that that our, our team was going to look at the dandelion and try to like figure out like make these little threads and whatever and then like throw it off through and we got kind of lucky because there was a it was pretty breezy that day and when we threw it up the wind did catch it and it took it pretty far so it was one of the furthest ones and I think for me it was one of those moments that I was like it felt exciting because it felt super original it felt like we were doing something different than everybody else it felt like we were being smart or wise in some way and Mm -hmm. this sort of connection to like observation and innovation was for me that was a super early example and then I think that sort of idea carried with me all the way until um, you know the more I learned about ecology and the more I learned about biology and the more Mm -hmm. I learned about industry and how we do things um, biomimicry really seemed like a poetic and romantic idea 
to look at nature and that nature has solutions to our problems. Um, and just that approach to things was very inspiring to me. And then I, I had the good fortune eventually to meet up with um, like-minded folks with Janine and Dana and crew there. And they, um, you know, some of the projects we did there early on just further deepened my sort of like, yes, this is, mm -hmm. this is incredible way to view the world and create solutions to different um, challenges. And, and, and I think pretty quickly we were able to help out big companies solve big problems. And, um, and then I was sold, I was sold on, on, on biomimicry. And it wasn't until I started wrestling with how do you incorporate innovation within design frameworks that biophilic design really started to become important mm -hmm. as how I approached things. And so biophilic design then became increasingly um, interesting to me because it was human centered. And so I kind of moved from this ecological perspective and excited about biomimicry in, into a understanding how do we integrate not just an appreciation for nature, but learning from nature and engaging with the biology that's around us um, in a in a in a way that makes sense. And biophilic design really starts to address that. Yeah. And and so that was that was the journey. And and then I've I've been sort of excited about both ever since. Awesome. And I mean your point about getting connected and understanding from an ecosystem perspective early on, even when you were six and seven, it's so obvious to young people, especially that, you know, we're all part of this system. And once they get excited about nature and going out into nature and that carrying that perspective with us for the rest of our life is like one of, for me, one of the most powerful components of biomimicry and biophilia, that connection yeah. to nature and returning to that connection to nature time and time again, because it's not just, you know, something we learn about and then move on with our lives. It's like deeply ingrained in what we do and how we go about living and, you know, applying these fields to our careers. I think it is a it is a really big point. One of my favorite uh, books is um, How to Raise a Wild Child by mm. uh, uh, Scott Sampson, I believe is his name. Um, and um, it really dives into some fascinating ways and resources to think about how do you how do you start to cultivate that exposure in those around you. And I think it's appropriate, not just for children, but mm -hmm. for anybody who's, you know, in the field of biophilic design or biomimicry, a lot of times, uh, whether you're teaching or whether you're a practitioner, um, getting yourself and others out into the natural world is a part of that. Totally. And, and the tools to be a mentor in that space and not somebody who's just instructing and telling everybody, mm -hmm. but helping people observe on their, on, on, on their own and, have confidence and engage in the world in new ways, I think is um, a really important skill set that that we don't teach enough. Yeah. Um, and so um, I think that's that's something that 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 book really, really highlights quite a bit. Yeah, and it's so true. I mean, even in the last couple of years in my own kind of teaching um, experience, teaching online obviously has its whole, you know, whole collection of hurdles. But emphasizing and building in that component for students to get outside, regardless of whether the class is online or whether, you know, however they access the learning materials, that practice and, you know, building up the skills and the, the 
the toolkit that people can have when they go out into nature, those observation skills, the inspiration skills, they are not taught to a certain degree in a lot of K through 12 and even universities of the act of being inspired by nature, because that is like the foundation for sure. So awesome book recommendation. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's one of the most valuable things I think as a takeaway that I've had with biomimicry isn't necessarily that it's an innovation tool. Of course, that's great. And that's where I first got excited. But I think the most valuable piece of it actually has been a new way of framing my relationship with the natural world. Mm -hmm. And I see this with other people as well, um, that it deepens their ability to go out into nature and have positive experiences. It deepens their ability, like they feel more comfortable engaging with the natural world around them, if that makes sense, and, and getting more benefit out of it. And we see this actually in biophilic design research as well, that your relationship to the natural world is an important part of how much it can actually help you. So if you if you start to value it more or you have different ways of accessing it, um, it actually increases the positive impact it can have on you. So it's a, it's a positive feedback loop. Yeah. And you kind of already spoke to this, but if there was, you know, one thing or maybe a few things that helped you fall in love with the practice, what were they? Yeah, I, I think for me, the practice of, of observation is, is, is another one of those pieces that it, that goes maybe unappreciated. And so natural history mm-hmm. is, a, is something that people have done for a long time. Um, but it, it, it's that art of observation and trying to see those connections and really looking closely. And when you go on a naturalist walk, um, what I love about, you know, w- whenever I've moved to a new location, I've tried to find a local natural history guide mm-hmm. and go out on a natural, hi- just because even places where I think I'm, I'm familiar with, with, with the place, it's great to hear their stories and learn. And, and, and the whole thing is, you know, you walk two feet and you look down and mm-hmm. then you spend a half an hour chatting <laughs> and then you walk two more feet. So they're not very strenuous, but they're very fascinating. Yeah. And then that deepens your storytelling of that place that deepens your ability to understand that place. And, and I think that piece of it, has been the you know the part that I find very satisfying is that that connection and you can do it with biomimicry um, instead of it being a natural history walk you're looking at function and you don't even have to know what any of the things around you are named what they're called what they do you're just looking at it from a functional lens and trying to see oh how do you think this might function within this place. And, Mm -hmm. and it starts to be almost like a mystery or a hunt, um, in a new way that I, I find really, um, really appealing as a, as somebody who likes to, you know, go out in the woods and just kind of imagine and look. So I think that's, that, that's one of the things that the practice I think is really rejuvenating and really, um, engaging as you get more into it. Yeah. Cultivating that curiosity is so important. And yeah, returning to it is really rewarding every time. I mean, when I go out into nature, being curious and yeah, not maybe not always knowing the names of things, but looking them up as I go and being curious about how things work or why they look the way they do. Um, Having that curiosity and walking through nature and, you know, in nature with that perspective has been super life-changing. And it's fascinating to me that people are intimidated by the by nature or by biology. A lot of 
a lot of the design teams I work with, you know, some of the designers would say that they're not good at science mm -hmm. or so they immediately are like, no, I can't do that because I don't know anything about seashells or I don't know anything about how forests work or whatever. And I think what, and that kind of kills me because it's like, no, nobody knows how these things really work. Mm -hmm. And we're all just going out to observe it. And a lot of the designers have the the observation skills mm -hmm. that biologists have been missing for the last 50, 100 years um, to go out and draw and, and spend time and th really think and ponder about how would this work? How does that thing close? How does that open? And so I think being able to think visually or engage in it in a different observation medium like sketching or photography opens the door that a lot of biologists aren't trained to walk through. Yeah. And so whenever you take designers out into the forest or they'll often observe things that I think are like great PhD projects that are yeah. things that biologists have never thought of. And, and, and I find that consistently every time I've ever gone out, that's, that's been the case. And so, um, but, but just to get over that, that sort of assumption that people don't have the skills to do it or don't have the ability, I think is, um, totally false. And so I, th there, there's a barrier there sometimes that I, that I find fascinating. Totally. I mean, the fear of quote science and biology is definitely present. And I think that can be a powerful component of biomimicry, especially this collaboration piece where you're working with folks from, you know, design and sustainability and biology and business. And it's bringing these people together with different backgrounds, but they're kind of a common mission and a common goal that they can explore together. And that exploration process leads to, you know, so many more outcomes than would have if somebody was trying to do it solo. So yeah, I, I love that. And a big part of my education journey has been kind of shedding a light on the power and potential of biomimicry for people that don't necessarily have the biology background, because that is a lot of untapped potential um, for that, for those folks that are, you know, potentially fearful of biology or, you know, difficult science. Awesome. Well, I would love to dive deeper into kind of how you're applying biomimicry and biophilia and or biophilia to your career. You mentioned Lululemon and Lab. I'd love for you to um, elaborate more on those projects. Yeah. Um, so it's been an interesting journey. I think for me, it's how I approach thinking about um, that sort of systems uh, perspective. And so a lot of a lot of things that I'm interested in right now are uh, sometimes it's biomimicry, sometimes it's biophilic de design, but a lot of times it's just this idea of how do you reach into science and understand what's going on in the sciences, what's going on in mm -hmm. you know how we're advancing our understanding of the biological world, and then what are the implications of that for the future, um, and right now in biology of course like the biggest things that are going on are crispr and ai and uh, protein design and sort of these these topics and where biomimicry starts to touch these is kind of interesting so you know if you look at crispr or you look at any of these advanced um, technologies in the genetic space they're all bio-inspired. They're all coming from organisms, um, and they're all you know we're learning about how do organisms do genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. We're learning about how do organisms engage in um, yeah uh, cutting and pasting basically within the genomes, and 
and how to do that accurately. And I think for a long time, you know, as somebody in bio, biomimicry, we knew that different organisms do this. Like we knew that rotifers will, uh, when they're in stress, will grab all of the organisms around them and chop them up and start putting <laughs> genomes into their babies and like just start randomly assigning things. And so we know that that's been happening and yet nobody really took the time to look at how they do that. And so once mm. we did, we're like, oh gosh, this is a toolbox that's amazing. And like any technology, there's huge potential and also huge dangers in mm -hmm. that space. So I think, um, and even more so when it comes to, I think like coding genetic codes, but I yeah. think that's one of the most important things that we're gonna have to talk about in the next hundred years is how is this used? Um, how is it being, um, um, you know, uh, advanced and, it's it, it it already is a, a pretty incredible uh, tool set that we now have that is rapidly changing how we make vaccines, how we uh, think about uh, diseases, and I think uh, it will also have negative consequences too. But 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 we're already seeing in in agriculture and in pharmaceuticals and in you know it, it's really a revolution of of information that's that we're able to now work on an informational level with biology. And, and I think, you know, what biomimicry and biophilic design inherently ask of us is that they ask us to be part of the natural system. Yeah. And I think the tools we now have, being conscientious that we are part of nature and that we need to think about how, our, how, how we impact and how we are a, a stakeholder, but only one stakeholder in the ecological system, we need to really continue that framework in that language as we go into these sort of genetic engineering conversations and think about, you know, what is our role in this space and how are we a regenerative part of this um, larger system and not something that's going to subtract or create uh, huge negative consequences. So I think that's a really important piece. And then um, like another one, protein design has been something that I've been fascinated with for a long time. And, um, you know, now we have, for the first time in the last couple of years, an AI tool can predict the shape of a protein. And one thing we know from mm -hmm. biomimicry is how important shape is to everything. And it's important mm -hmm. on the molecular level. It's important on the, you know, nano level and the macro level. And it has different impacts in all these levels. And now we have the tools to understand function and shape of proteins um, that before would take us, you know, a whole PhD to do. Now somebody, now we just have those shapes. Um, they're all, they're almost all done. It's, it's crazy how advanced this is going and how fast it is. And I think we're not even realizing yet what that powerful of tool that is. And, um, we'll start to see some dramatic changes in, in how we think about protein design and how we think about um, the impact that that can have. So those two tools together really give us the ability to dramatically dictate our biological future and the biological future of all organisms around us. And I think that's crazy, but it's, it's true. And we need to think about it in terms of um, what, what do we think is the, you know, the most beneficial way forward. And, and so that's the conversation that I'm really curious to have with people and to build the technologies that, um, that are 
looking at that and understanding how can we be a productive part of a larger ecosystem within that space. Um, and so when we look at that from my client's perspective, you know, all my clients are relatively small in comparison to these big ideas, but uh, you know, what, what can they do? What are the technologies they can invest in? What are the projects that they should be thinking about in terms of using these technologies in their own industries? And how do they, um, you know, map a future that is regenerative for them, that helps them with their goals, but also is in align with sort of larger natural systems? I think that's the challenge we face in the next, you know, 100 years. And I think, you know, E.O. Wilson had this really great quote, which I'm going to butcher, but it was something like, we have paleolithic minds, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And and that's really what we're at mm -hmm. right now. And this is, this is appropriate for biophilic design too, because, you know, we evolved, you know, out in savannas and forests and in these dynamic landscapes. And now we're living in cities and it's just mm -hmm. such a complete misfit with our evolved needs as human beings. And we are now spending, you know, 80% of our time inside and looking at screens and sitting down. And we all know these are all huge health risks and huge health factors, not just our mental health, but our physiological health, like all of these different things are in impacting us. And, um, and we need to be really careful and think about, you know, how do you know we're stuck in these biological bodies we're stuck with this evolutionary mm -hmm. history and we can't ignore it and we shouldn't and we shouldn't uh, uh so just for our own health and our own mental being we really need to um, evaluate how we're adding biophilic design and that thinking in the space and then looking at our technology like how do we be regenerative parts of a larger ecosystem that supports you know all life on earth <laughs> like like you know yeah. whether that's co2 or water or nutrient flows, like all of those things are, we, we don't necessarily pay enough attention to them. And, and so I think though, with these new tools that we have and the new understanding we have about biology and how systems work, we now have the capability to dramatically impact how we live, you know, what we wear and, 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 and how our systems of production are regenerative. And I think that's um, that's really the big challenge in the next hundred years. And so that's that's what I work on with my clients is, is what are the baby steps we can take to move there? What are the, what are the next things that we need to uh, be thinking about or projects we need to invest in to, to make that happen? Yeah, and Tim, you're kind of one of few that's in this really important space of application. You have the biomimicry and biophilia background and you are working to get those ideas to reality with clients. And so my a big question and a big hurdle I think for biomimicry and biophilia is that kind of application space. Okay, we've gone out into nature, we're inspired by something we see, we understand how it works, we have even potentially some ideas for how it could be applied. But there's a lot of mystery I think in like how to get it to market, how to build that innovation and make it happen and put it out in the world or, you know, potentially work with somebody or, you know, get it out there. And so I'm wondering if you can shed some light perhaps on what are some of those hurdles and how we can potentially overcome them for, you know, other folks in this space. Yeah. I think, I think biomimicry can be hugely frustrating for people yeah. um, in part because um, you see how systems are connected. You see great ideas. Maybe you have great ideas. 
and yet ideas are effectively worth nothing uh, mm -hmm. because until they're implemented um, or until you, you can get, you know, society, you know, cultural money, however you want to measure it, isn't, isn't really going to pay attention. And so, um, and the other the thing that's fascinating with biomimicry is because it is non-human centered, um, it's super disruptive. So mm -hmm. you look at any, any innovation in biomimicry for, for the most part, it's not like a two-year or three-year innovation cycle. It's like a 30 to 50-year innovation mm -hmm. cycle because you're talking about changing the way you make something or changing like changing the way you totally think about a, a chemistry or an approach to even just fastening, like Velcro. Like yeah. didn't happen overnight. That was like a 30-year thing and it's still changing how we think about stuff. So I think these radical disruptive ideas that come out of biomimicry, um, it's a long technology road. It's a big development hurdle. Oftentimes there's huge benefits to doing it, um, both from a human-centered usability standpoint or from a chemistry standpoint or an ecological or sustainability standpoint, um, or all of them. Um, they're often tied together. And so there's lots of really good potential there, but they're also really big, uh, really big challenges. And so it's realizing what the size of that bite is that you're trying to take out of mm -hmm. that pie that I think is one of the first things to sort of start to think about is recognizing how hard it is to create those kinds of changes. And then, um, and then getting the resources, investment, and people on board to do that is the next challenge. So, you know, the, whether you're working within a company or outside of a company, you know, you kind of have to think about any new idea as a bit of a startup and and thinking of it as okay well you know we're going to need to convince other people so you have to have a really clear communication of why this is good what problems does it solve um where it, and then and then you have to get money for it so who is going to pay for it who's going to pay for the first step to really understand the market and understand where the market fit is and and then it's development which is a whole another cycle which is mm -hmm. okay now we need the right engineers we need the right you know team on board so it's about you have to stack up all these different elements and it really is a team sport and you and it's not just um entrepreneurs that can do this but people who are within companies um but it takes a lot of money a lot of time and a lot of a lot of convincing and a lot of group activity to get anything, even the smallest thing to move forward. And I think that's underappreciated. I think we think that if you send a good idea to somebody, they'll be like, oh, okay, let's do that. And I don't, everyone's busy. Everyone's already got ideas. Everyone's already trying to make the world a better place for the most part. And so you have to compete in that space and you have to, um, uh, really partner with the right investment and business focus to to advance those ideas, and that's that's what I've I've seen be effective. Um, and and honestly, what I what I spend my time still figuring out. Like it's not like I figured this out. Um, I don't think anybody has. You know, in, innovation's not an easy field, yeah. um, and it's meant to be frustrating. Like I mean, or it is. I think you know part of it is your 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 goal is to disrupt and provoke and um, create a future that's better. And, and that's, that's definitely something that is filled with a lot of work and a lot of frustration and a lot of partnership and, and even, and the small wins really celebrate those, I think. Um, and I've seen just amazing things in the last 
I don't know how however long I've been in this field, 15 years now or something. Um, you know, I I've been at times pretty pessimistic about about the future or about how people and then I and then all the time it, it switches and I'm just filled with like, oh wow, I can't believe they got this done or this is an amazing innovation. And and I do think the conversation has been tilting towards biophilic design, disruptive design, mm -hmm. um, bio uh, biomimicry. Um, I think these are more and more accepted more widely and we're starting to see the way that that you know you can you can influence um, our technology and 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 that there's a real desire for everybody to um, to be in a regenerative space to to be to look to nature as not just a um, you know a resource for uh, how do I do better chemistry or whatever, but also some, some, you know, instruction from a, from a strategy level. Um, and that, that, that's been one of the fascinating things that I think early on had a lot of impact around, which was, I moved away a little bit from looking at nature as like a tool or looking at, you know, looking at it as a way to get like new engineering and more as a strategy. And, you know, there were some companies that, we talked to that, you know, just the idea of being resilient versus efficient and like why in nature you might want to be resilient and, and where resilience shows up changed the entire strategy of a company investing in how they uh, manufacture their product. And so, you know, some of these sort of strategic conversations when you can um, show how a natural system works. Um, changes the conversation on a business or in, on an industry level, which can have massive impacts. And so, you know, there's a balance there, but but that's um, that's something that I've been I've been excited about. So, like for example, all of the IDEO nature cards that we did are all on that level mm -hmm. of how do you talk about um, you know how do you look to nature as sort of, sort of strategy, or how do you look to nature as a um, as a larger way to tell stories that that can open the thinking space or validate some assumptions you already have um, and there's a little bit of danger there like you don't want to put value judgments in the natural world anybody who's like saying we should do this because nature does this i think is 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 maybe missing the missing the right thread where it's like we can learn from how nature does this and what does that make us think of i think is maybe a better a better way of 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 approaching it and so um, all of those have been powerful tools, whether it's, you know, getting investment, business development, you know, engineering, or even just looking from a strategy per perspective, all of those come into play um, in a mix to, to sort of look and try and create the future we want. Yeah. And I mean, I can confirm having worked on the last few years, um, launching my own um, startup and co-founding um, a project that started as my master's thesis, the hurdles and the struggle and the frustration that comes with that space of entrepreneurship and the importance of having a good team, having great collaborators, getting people kind of in your boat and being able to communicate kind of what you're doing, why you're trying to do it, the impact it can have, et cetera. So awesome. Yeah. Thank you for speaking to that. Yeah. I'd, I'd also say there's probably one other thing, which is it is a big space, but I think it's much bigger than people expect. The gap between, you know, it, within innovation, there's lots of gaps, but 
and even within biomimicry or biophilic des design, there's people will gravitate to different aspects of it and be good at different aspects of it. And I think mm -hmm. where I've found myself really gravitated towards is sort of that, you know, at the base level, what is going on in the sciences? And I love that space, reading about the latest in science. And, and, and then what does that mean for our future and trying to connect the dots and give sort of the fuzzy front end future forecasting strategy pieces. Um, that's where I gravitate towards. And I know I have good friends who gravitate towards other aspects, mm -hmm. whether it's like the development of it and really diving into, you know, how do we learn from nature to design something? Um, and, and what does that mean? Or, or how do we invest, you know, how, how do we think about investment? And so I think, you know, um, there's, it's a, it's, it's a much bigger area than people think. Mm -hmm. And I think when you start to apply it, it becomes almost daunting. And so trying to grab, you know, find a little bit of a niche or where you find traction in terms of your skill set and your interest and the world around you is, is a challenge, but it, it can be pretty rewarding. Exactly. And people spend years trying to figure that out, but I think it's really important, especially as you're practicing in this space and, you know, trying to apply ideas and making them a reality. Absolutely. I think I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> what are you hopeful about right now? Um, I am pretty, pretty hopeful about um, that we will eventually, that, that, that we have the um, sort of the technology and that people in general are, are really focused on regenerative design and mm -hmm. how how much that's that's resonating with people right now. I think that's the most hopeful thing. I mean, the thing that that I see happening is that you know change never comes quick enough when you're in it when you're in the innovation field, um, and so it can be frustrating to sort of feel like you're waiting or feel like it's taking so long to get things done. On the other side of it, you know what I see happening with global warming uh, or with other conversations whether it's with, you know, the pandemic is that people generally don't make changes until there's enough pain to make those changes. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately we're sort of in a space where we're going to continue to have pain for quite a while. Um, and I think the opportunity really for the community for different people is to win the hurricane, you know, floods Miami or New York um, to then that's an opportunity to talk about, coastal, you know, regeneration. Um, it's also maybe an opportunity to talk about water and the importance of water cycles and maybe CO2. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when these things happen um, or when there's a firestorm in Colorado, you know, mm -hmm. these are horrible disasters. And I think um, the reality is following up on those, preparing for the future ones and then understanding um, how do we start to prevent that will become more and more of the conversation. And that's where biomimicry and biophilic design really excel. Uh, they really help both make that a conversation, a positive one, and also make it one where there are solutions and there are solutions that we know work. And there are things that we can do to start to mitigate and start to, you know, reverse course on a lot of the things that we've done in the past. So, um, I think that's where we see um, whether that's good or not. I don't know. I'd love for people to do it before there's a disaster, but it feels like 
yeah. that's kind of where the opportunity is, is there's going to continue to be lots of these extreme environment um, detrimental impacts. And I think that's a place for the community to step in and, and start to point out how we can look to nature and, and what our responsibilities maybe are in that space. Exactly. All right. Last two questions here. First one, what is one of your favorite ways to connect and reconnect with nature? I mean, my absolute favorite way is to play uh, in the ocean, like on the in the waves, mm-hmm. and just be immersed. And usually with friends or family. Uh, I'm not like a surfer. Uh, I I just play in the waves. Um, sometimes with a surfboard, sometimes not. But it's definitely like the most immersive, uh, both literally and figuratively thing you're definitely in the zone you have to pay attention it's dangerous there's a sense of awe and it's beautiful usually um and there's life all around you so it it, it's a very uh engaging way that i always i always feel great after doing that and and then like the next step down would be yeah kind of like a like an easy run or jog through a forest I, i always find that uh restorative as well and then stopping and kind of looking around or taking taking a moment um, so if, whether I'm sort of on land or, or by the ocean, those are my, those are my favorite things to do. Wonderful. I, I totally get the playing in the water and just floating in water. I'm curious if you've read that book, um, Wallace J. Nichols, I think wrote it about our connection to water. It's called Blue Mind, um, and kind of how the psych, like the physiological effects it has on our brain. Um, that might be an interesting read. Yeah, that's a great one. Very biophilic. Very, yeah. uh, you know, it's like the biophilic of water. Like if you're going to mm-hmm. dive into that space. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a great book. Speaking of books, my last question is any recommendations or resources that could be books or websites or whatever um, for folks who are interested in biophilia um, and or biomimicry and want to learn more about this? Yeah, I have a couple. Um, I mentioned how to raise a wild child. So I think that's one. Um but I think if you're really, if you're in the architecture space and you're curious about biophilic design, there's a book called Nature Inside by uh, Bill Browning and Katie Ryan. And, and, and it, it's recent. It just came out this last year, I think. And it is, I think, the most comprehensive approach in it, for biophilic de- design within architecture. And it, it covers not just examples, but also process and how to approach it and tools and thinking around biophilic design that is, you know, learned from, you know, two decades of work from Terrapin Bright Green and beyond um, on how to engage biophilic design in the architecture space. And I think it's actually good for anybody Mm -hmm. in biophilic design, but especially in architecture. Um, So that's one of my favorite ones there. And it gets into some, some good details, but I think it's very readable and very accessible. Um, another great sort of biophilic design book that's not really biophilic design is called Joyful by Ingrid Fatel Lee. So just like Blue Mind looks at like water, um, Ingrid is looking at joyfulness, like for, mm-hmm. and, and what what creates joyfulness and all like all that. I think the subtitle is like the surprising power. Oh, the surprising power of ordinary things to create extraordinary happiness, and it's. It gets into all these different uh, sort of aspects of uh, a human-centered sort of design approach, almost from a bio. You could almost look at biophilic design as part of this, and so and it, and she also has great tools 
great ways of engaging wonderful storytelling and and it's a joy to read and it's very useful i keep going back to it as a tool um, to think about design not just on an architecture level but on a product level it's super useful um, so i find that that book great and then lastly i mean the nature fix is a classic mm -hmm. at this point by florence williams and it really is you know she does a great job of of going in and kind of giving it's even getting a little bit dated now it's not that old but um, but the field's moving so fast, but she gives a good introduction to the science behind biophilic design and some of the thinking and the people behind it that, that are, um, you know, how does nature start to help us as a, as a, you know, from a health perspective and, you know, there's increasing numbers of doctors now prescribing going out into nature and there's forest bathing and and mm -hmm. so she starts to dive into that space and and it, and it, it like i said it's a quickly moving space we're learning more and more all the time but um but i think it's a it, it it's a really fascinating a good place to start wonderful definitely adding those first two to my list as well i've read that last one but um the joyfulness one sounds really wonderful yeah yeah, Ingrid. In in Ingrid Fatelli. Her book's fantastic. Yeah, joyful. Awesome. Thank you, Tim, for chatting with me today. I feel like we had a really great conversation, and I'm really excited to share um, these discussion points. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I hope you are more inspired than ever to reconnect with nature and discover all the ways we can learn from and be inspired by the natural world. Until next time, I will leave you with one of my favorite Mary Oliver quotes to pay attention. This is our endless and proper work. <laughs>